Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ron Winslow. I'm a former longtime medical and science reporter and editor at the Wall Street Journal, and now a freelance journalist with a focus on those subjects. This is my first interview for the New Books Network, or for any podcast for that matter, and I'm especially lucky to have as my first guest, Dr. Stephen Hauser, a physician scientist at the University of California, San Francisco, where he is also a distinguished professor of neurology and director of the Weill Institute for for Neurosciences. He's with us today to talk about his new book entitled, The Face Laughs While the Brain Cries, published last month in May of 2023 by St. Martin's Press. There's a fascinating and riveting tale about his 40 year quest to find uh, a new treatment for understanding for um, for multiple sclerosis, and it resulted in a drug that has dramatically changed the lives of thousands of patients with a devastating disease. Steve, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ron. Delighted to be here. So, before we dig into the details of your story, can we uh, can you introduce yourself briefly? and uh, give us a sense of how you managed, how you came to write this book. Well, as you said, Ron, I'm a physician scientist, um, and uh, I currently lead an institute at UCSF that brings all of the neuroscience communities together, the most basic to the most clinical, involving scientists, physicians, patients, and the public in order to speed answers for brain diseases of all sorts. Uh, We also have open doors to industry, other institutions and foundations. I think that we are at the beginning of a dramatic change in what will be possible for the billion people each year who suffer from a brain disease. And so your book is, I mean, and you had uh, some experiences uh, in your career with many of the different neuro, neuro uh, diseases. Yours is on, uh, your book is on multiple sclerosis. And I think it would help uh, our listeners if you could provide a brief primer on, um, on MS before we get into these details. I'd, I'd be just delighted to. Well, I wanted this book to reflect the opportunities, not only in multiple sclerosis, but for other brain diseases, for it to be a story uh, grounded in reality that that increases the public's confidence in science, uh, hopefully will encourage young people to consider careers in science and medicine, and also be a a feel-good story because it has a happy ending. Uh, MS is a one of the great medical mysteries. Uh, it is a disease of both the immune system and the brain. The immune system designed to protect us against invading microbes. In MS, misidentifies nerve cells and their myelin coverings as foreign. Normally, each of our nerve cells con- connect with 50,000 or so other cells via electrical signals, some of which travel as long as six feet in our body. But when the myelin is attacked by the immune system, 
the nerves short circuit, uh, a little bit like a frayed power cord. Over time, the connections are lost, nerve cells die, and symptoms of brain disease appear. Symptoms like visual blurring, weakness, numbness, incoordination, loss of bowel and bladder function, etc. I said at the beginning that MS is a uh, medical mystery, and it still is to some degree. We still don't quite understand the trigger, certainly in the environment, that is responsible for beginning MS in the first place. We don't understand why MS is dramatically increasing in frequency, along with other autoimmune diseases, diseases where the immune system attacks organs of the body. Currently, there are more than uh, a million people in the United States alone, we believe, who have multiple sclerosis. This is a clear increase uh, from the past. So MS is a challenging disease. It's one with good cause for optimism. Um, uh, And it's also inherently very interesting. Well, you open open the book with one of the worst cases of the disease, I think, uh, that you'd ever seen. Um, Tell us a little bit about Andrea and the impact that she has had on your career. Yes. When I was beginning to write The Face Laughs While the Brain Cries, it became clear to me that early events in my childhood and adolescence, and especially during my early years of medical training, had a profound impact, even if they were sometimes subconscious, on what happened subsequently. Um, But Andrea was a centerpiece for uh, my career and uh, moving my interest to a study of brain diseases caused by immune changes. Uh, Andrea is a young woman I met when many years ago. Uh, She was 27 and I was 27. She was extraordinarily accomplished until MS struck. It began in a very unusual way with changes in behavior, thought possibly psychiatric, even though there was nothing in her history to suggest this. She carried on for a few weeks until she awakened one morning unable to speak, and then over hours developed weakness on the right side and then lost her ability to swallow and even breathe on her own. Her family rushed her to Boston, where she had originally gone to school and to our hospital. I was a resident, an an internist, but a neurologist in training when we first met. And I remember seeing Andrea for the first time and thinking that this was the most unfair thing I had ever seen in medicine. And 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 I think that... uh one impact of that was you decided that MS would going to be the foc- a focus of your research yes. uh, going forward. Yes. At the time, uh, there were no treatments for MS. There was even pessimism among senior people that a treatment could ever be developed or that MS could be understood. Uh, modern 
uh, imaging, things like the MRI scan uh, was not even a rumor. We were really left with our hands, our tools from the 19th century. Um, uh, and medicine in many ways was, uh, was many generations removed from what it is today. Yes, that that's come through loud and clear in your book. There was, you know, at one point there were, you were working, there weren't even fax machines, not not to mention no email, you know, no MRIs, um, uh, no PubMed. I mean, just the whole the whole environment, the whole ecosystem of medical research is light years from where you where you were when you uh, started this uh, this odyssey. Yes, and th- this was not ancient history. This was the nineteen seventies. Right. <laughs> so the face laughs while the brain cries. That's a provocative title and kind of one of those that causes you to think, how did, how did that come about? What does that signify? Yes. It, the, the title, in fact, was suggested by uh, Tim Bartlett, my, uh, my editor at St. Martin's Press. And it came from the story of Andrea, uh, which leads the, 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 which begins the book. Um, and it describes Andrea's experience with, it, with her devastating attack of MS. It re- this refers to a neurologic symptom that indicates severe damage to a very specific tiny area in the brain that controls emotional responses. It's a particularly tragic symptom because patients are emotionally devastated but they can smile and laugh uncontrollably because the nerves controlling facial expressions in this tiny area are disconnected from the emotional circuits in the brain. So the face laughs while the brain cries. Fascinating, Uh, really interesting. And is that pretty common across uh across people who uh, who come down with this disease? It's, it's an it unusual symptom um, yeah. and unusual when it presents explosively as it did here, but it is not uncommon and it is a classic symptom uh, in brain science. Well, I want to get much into much more detail on the disease and uh, your research, but first of all, uh, I love this line in your book in which you say, in the Jewish religion, life begins when the fetus is accepted to medical school. Uh, I hadn't heard anything like that before. I thought that was classic. But in reading, so you may well have been destined to become a doctor, Steve, but in reading, you know, the your early life influences, it wasn't, I was wondering when it became your decision to become a doctor and what kind of events in the, your childhood, you had your family shoe store, um, you had your, your brother's uh, um, disease, you had a, a variety of other events. You're, you smart-talked your, yourself into that uh, law firm job. Um, anyway, what, what led you to finally uh, go into medicine? I think as I was writing the book, Ron, it became more and more clear to me that these early events played such an overwhelming 
role in my subsequent direction towards science and medicine. And I also say in the book um, that our our nervous systems are designed to answer questions and solve problems. And we are built to connect events with outcomes based on our past or, or subsequent experience. And it could be that, that these connections that I made in the book, are, which came to me as a senior citizen, um, uh, may not be entirely accurate, but it was a driver in the narrative um, that, that almost wrote itself. Uh, and looking back, I'm not sure I had much say in the matter of how my career turned out. It was certain that there was an overwhelming environment filled with immune diseases and brain diseases. And for me to have become an immunologist and a brain physician, uh, in retrospect, makes enormous sense. Uh, my brother was the, the main influence, as you say. Um, I had a brother who was born severely retarded, mentally and physically disabled, uh, with parents who were guilt-ridden, with kids in the neighborhood who would mock us uh, because my brother was part of our family. It certainly changed my mother's life. She became uh, a professional involved in teaching and rehabilitation of youngsters with disability. My best friend had a brain tumor and I watched him perish. Uh, my mom's best friend had a brain infection that led her to lose her memory and personality. And I personally suffered from immune illnesses, uh, terrible asthma, eczema um, in my early life, which as, as you read, was in New Orleans, Louisiana, and then in New York, um, because my mom's family was Southern and my dad's Northern. So it seemed as if brain diseases and immune diseases were all around me. And one of your early, um, I don't know, one of your early um, projects, I guess you might say, when you were in medical school uh, was uh, what seemed to me sort of an effort to do a forensic autopsy yes. on your brother. Yes. And uh, both to learn more about what it was that uh, befell him and and also to uh, you know help your mom and, and your parents uh, sort of understand better and relieve some of their guilt, um, and uh, and I guess that led to you initially thinking that you might um, invest uh, some time trying to uh, deal with treating uh, mental retardation or yes. looking into that area. Yes, but, I spent a year. While in medical school, uh, focusing on a form of mental retardation called autism that is now very much in the public eye um, and worked with uh, mentally disabled children on weekends uh, and adults on weekends uh, in 
scattered uh, institutions uh, around Massachusetts um, and wanted to understand what happened to my brother um, and then spent a lot of time, as you say, digging into the history of what had happened. And what was remarkable to me was um, first that I could fill in some of the blanks, but also that some things are just not knowable, um, and that my parents' view of what had happened uh, was a, a, a whispered story that then amplified over the years and was entirely incorrect. Um, that their, their view of the cause of the medical problem was, was wrong, and I could help them uh, with that fallacy. Right. Um, well, I hope they, I hope they were encouraged in, in that regard. Yes. It's interesting. You mentioned, uh, you, you write in the book that in, uh, that you mentioned to one of your mentors, Dr. Adams, that you wanted to, uh, wanted to study more and learn more mental retardation. And he, he told you to, um, you probably can't fix that problem. You better work on something that you might be able to solve. Yes. Uh, I, I wondered how much that that advice sort of helped propel your interest in MS. That, that was huge. Uh, I think one of the most important things that a mentor can do is to be completely honest with a young person who comes to ask for advice, even when that honesty means that the, the trainee should rethink, uh, in my case, his passion. Uh, and sometimes uh, trainees link up with mentors who are nice to them. Ray Adams uh-huh. was a, the most fabulous mentor one could ever have. I don't think he remembered any of our names. <laughs> he would call us boy really? or girl or whatever. Yeah. Um, but his advice was very meaningful to me in two ways. First, in guiding me away from a less productive area of research for me. And second, in making the key observation that led to the MS therapy being developed. So, uh, and it almost seems like that advice came contemporarily with, uh, with your uh, meeting Andrea, or at least pretty much around that time. Came right, right after that, yes. Yeah. And so, and then you had a couple of other patients uh, that moved your thinking ahead. And it seemed to me that um, that there were, and I could be miscounting or understating this or whatever, there, there are at least three areas where your work um, was significant in changing the trajectory of this disease. And one of them was your, determ- your work to show that it was an autoimmune disease. Um, I gather at the time, I don't know, was it the thought that it was a virus or was it a thought there was some other external cause? And, uh, you know, talk a little bit about how you sort of uh, came to the idea that 
that this might be an autoimmune disease? Yeah, I, I think that one of the lessons of all of this to me was that in my career, I've learned more from my patients than I have even from all of the laboratory work, although it's bringing the two together that really was responsible for making a difference. Um, the general thinking was that MS was probably a virus disease, probably caused by a virus. And yet the immune system was also overactive. Whether the virus was still in the body causing disease when people had MS or whether it had already disappeared and now the immune system was responsible was hotly debated. Um, but if one uh, uh, wanted to suppress the immune system, if a virus was responsible for MS, then it would make MS worse because we needed our immune system to control the viral infection. And that was the dominant thought in medicine and in the literature at the time, that MS was caused by a virus. Um, so the idea that if you turned off the immune system, you would help the virus and hurt the person was, was the predominant idea. The first patient I saw had another disease that caused her to have chemotherapy, which turned off her MS. And the second patient had a disease that was another immune disease that caused the immune system to turn on and then to turn off, on, off, on, off in cycles. And we learned from her that every time the immune system was turned on, her MS turned on. And when the immune system was turned off, the MS turned off. And the first patient who's, who received chemotherapy for a cancer, that also turned off her immune system. So from those two patients, it was clear, at least in their experience, that turning off the immune system helped their MS. And at the time, there were two very courageous physicians in Europe who were treating MS with a form of chemotherapy, a medicine called cyclophosphamide, still used today, and reported positive results, although the experiments were not well controlled and were not seen by the general community as reliable. And so you ended up um, conducting this trial. Testing it. Testing it, testing it to, to see whether you, whether a clinical trial could actually affirm that the immune, that suppressing the immune system would be a boon to patients with MS. Yes. This was also in the 1970s, and I was still a trainee. Um, and it was the, the uh, landscape of medical research was also very, very different. Um, For sure. Uh, most institutions didn't even have human studies committees. Uh, and experiments were being done often on patients without uh, any oversight whatsoever. It was really quite remarkable how 
different the world was then. And at our hospital, we had just formed a human studies committee that was still voluntary, but one could ask for their advice about clinical trials. And I, I think that the one that we did in multiple sclerosis was only the second one uh, in Boston that had ever been uh, overseen by a human studies committee. Oh, and this was at MGH, correct? This was at Mass Massachusetts General, General yeah. Hospital, yeah. yes. Right. And uh, that you had 58 patients, I think, in that. And yes. Four, four years to get this one small piece of the puzzle. Yes. Uh, um, and you've had a lot more years to go yes. <laughs> on your journey, for sure. Um, and and the next step, I think, was uh, was this issue of finding a, an appropriate animal model of MS. Yes. Um, and um, how, how did how did that one unfold? Well, um, I decided to become an immunologist after my neurology training was completed, and in the laboratory, all immunologists would cut their teeth uh, on mouse experiments. And mice were very easy to work with if you were an immunologist because they were genetically identical and they would accept each other's transplants of immune cells or organs without any rejection. They were like, like bundles of identical twins. Um, and there was a very well-established model for multiple sclerosis, which is really a model of brain inflammation in mice caused by an autoimmune attack that you would create in the mouse by making the mouse's immune system sensitive to brain tissue. It was a, an outgrowth of the uh, catastrophic side effects of the early Pasteur and other vaccines. So I began working in a very sophisticated mouse immunology laboratory on this model that was used by the world uh, throughout as the model for multiple sclerosis. But when I began to look at this model, it was very clear that yes, there was inflammation in the brain, white blood cells were moving into the brain and causing damage. But apart from that, the tissue changes looked nothing at all like the real human MS looked under the microscope when we had biopsy tissue or during autopsies from people who had died who had multiple sclerosis. And when I spoke with the pathologists about that, they said, well, of course, they're not the same. These are mice and humans are different, but the mechanism must be the same. And then it was once again, Ray Adams who said to me after a uh, particularly telling uh, seminar that was a, a disaster for the poor presenter, uh, which I describe in the book, um, when Adams criticized his mouse uh, experiments as a model for MS, that I asked Dr. Adams, do you think that one could develop a model that had more fidelity to the human condition? And he said, look at the primate monkey literature. They develop a disease under certain circumstances that is identical to human MS. And that's how this all started. And the model that ultimately emerged was uh, 
a small monkey called a marmoset, correct? Yes. A, a marmoset did, called Calatrix yacus, yeah. which is native to the mountains of South America, is the size of a guinea pig and uh. is born as multiple births that share a common fetal blood supply. So they are um, usually triplets, uh, non-identical triplets, but because they share this common blood supply during development, they're tolerant to each other's tissues. So we thought that we could use the marmoset model to do the same sorts of experiments that had been done in mice to tease apart all of the different players in the immune system to find the critical one that was responsible for the inflammation. And what was the outcome of that that effort? I mean, is that what led to uh, a B cell? um, It it was, Ron. As the culprit? Yes. So the first problem was that that these little monkeys seemed entirely resistant to disease. And it took one fabulous postdoctoral fellow when I was ready to give up a young neurologist from Florence, Italy, who came up with the magic recipe that created that model. And that first day when that happened, we knew that something very important had happened. And when we looked at the tissue and now the MRI scan, because 15 years had passed, it was clear that what we saw looked exactly like multiple sclerosis. And we then thought, well, now we will prove that the cell that causes inflammation in the mouse is the cell that can produce MS in a higher species. And this was a cell called the thymus-derived or T lymphocyte. T is in Tom. This is the major type of general in the immune system uh, that really makes sure that our immune system selectively responds. When we're infected with polio, we respond to polio and not to everything else. And in the mice, T cells caused the brain inflammation. And you could prove that by just transferring T cells from an animal that was ill to one that wasn't, and you would transfer the disease with just T cells. But we tried again and again for several years in the marmosets. And what we transferred was that brain inflammation that looked nothing like MS, the same thing we had seen for years in mice. And then a second fabulous young person, while we were on a boat to Victoria Island to a meeting and trying to figure out why these experiments weren't working, said, maybe it's not T cells at all. Maybe it's B cells and antibodies that they make. B cells are a very minor part of the immune system. They were discovered by Max Cooper just in the late 1960s. They're only 2% of the white cells and white blood cells in our body. And they were thought to have a protective role in the mouse model because if B cells weren't there, the mice were even uh, sicker. So they thought, well, if you interrupt B cells, you're going to make patients worse. Well, we ran back to the lab 
transferred B cells and antibodies, which are the chemical bullets that B cells make, and gadzooks. Um, within two weeks, we had been able to replicate the MS picture in the marmosets. And this told us that the generals orchestrating the immune damage to produce this lesion that was indistinguishable from MS was not the T cell at all. It was this rare understudied cell called the B cell. So that was a a huge moment. And it then led us to go back to the tissue from that we had from people with MS and to show that even though we'd not focused on it before, B cells and the antibody chemicals that they made were all over the areas of tissue damage in the patients who had real MS. And so this finding uh, was a big challenge to the conventional wisdom that yes. uh, uh, on how on how people thought uh, MS was driven. Absolutely, um, it's a, it's amazing how hard it was to pivot from that original idea. Looking back, people had tried to treat MS with a T cell removal therapy. And it had no effect at all. <laughs> um, the, by this time, there were treatments under development for people with MS that would subsequently have modest effects and were approved for treatment. And they were based mostly on fighting a presumed virus infection. Um, but even when the T-cell treatments didn't work, everyone thought that T-cells still caused MS. And I had, I drank the Kool-Aid also in those early years until we had the data suggesting that another route might be the correct one. And as it happened, uh, as you write in uh, the face laughs, all the brain cries, uh, a B-cell drug came on the market uh, at about this time that provided a pathway for you to actually um, test this idea um, exactly in, in people, right? Exactly. It was now uh, 1999, and in 1997, a B-cell biotechnology therapy, the first monoclonal antibody therapy for use in humans, rituxan or rituximab, was approved for treatment of B-cell cancers, a form of lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And among the many many parts of the story that almost seem miraculous in hindsight, rituximab was developed by my college roommate. (laughs) I remember, I remember, yes, for sure. Yeah, some some coincidences are kind of remarkable, aren't they? Yes, yes. Uh, but that didn't necessarily make it easy for you to get it tested. It, it <laughs> um, didn't. It sure I didn't. Mean, you lined up. You lined up a lot of the basic science and decided that uh, you needed a small trial to test it in real time. 
um, and went to the NIH for funding. Yes. I thought we had done our job, Ron. We had yeah. published the observations in first-tier journals, um, had strong evidence, and with colleagues submitted a, an application for funding of a very preliminary clinical trial uh, to the NIH. And the study section came back and said that this was biologically implausible. <laughs> and then in a subsequent discussion with the head of the Neurologic Disease Institute, a wonderful guy, he said, you have a terrific group. Uh, change this nonsense and study T-cells and we'll fund a trial of T-cell therapy for MS. But we won't fund a B-cell therapy. And uh, which made no sense to you, I gather. And uh, so that well, trial didn't happen. I understand that, that the federal government needs to rely on their experts. Um, and experts um, uh, are the often the proselytizers of, of prevailing beliefs and conventional wisdom. They are the influence makers, um, right or wrong. They're usually right, but in this case, um, they were not. So you ultimately uh, <clears throat> went to Genentech, um, which was one of the, I mean, which had rights to uh, this drug. Yes. Correct. And uh, that wasn't a slam dunk either, but you finally got a trial um, uh, put together or that they they that they. Um, would sponsor. They agreed to sponsor um, the trial, right. and it was a, a an incredibly um, courageous decision on their part. And after, and then, um, then you still had to get the FDA to approve this trial. And uh, after having your roommate, uh, you know, having been the developer of this drug and getting. Genentech, uh, you know, a very powerful and influential uh, developer of, of drugs in this arena on board. The FDA said, uh, well, they didn't say no, but they didn't say yes right away anyway. They limited the uh, scope of this trial significantly. Yes. They forced us <laughs> to cut it in half, uh, both in terms of the number of doses of the drug we could give. You get, The drug is given once every six months. We wanted to give two doses, uh, six months apart, and they said we could only give one. We wanted to treat 200 patients. They said you can only treat half that number. And at the time, I still thought that the benefits that we were seeing were likely due to removal of the antibody chemical bullets that B cells were making and not by the B cells themselves. And we also knew that it would take a long time for a B-cell treatment to uh, deplete the chemical antibody bullets. So we thought that the treatment would need time to be effective. Mm -hmm. And I was very concerned, as was everybody, that the trial was just too small and too short to work. But we were hoping to see just a whisper of benefit 
that could bring us back to the FDA with evidence that it didn't make people worse as it did in the mice, and that maybe there was a little trend towards a benefit so that we could do a more substantial study. And Genentech, even after that, continued to go forward with the sponsorship of this of this trial. And as it happened, uh, small though it was and limited though it was, uh, you got a pretty dramatic result. Yes. That was the most dramatic moment of the whole uh, 40-year journey. Really? Um, I, I know it very well. It was the last August on a Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock in the Bay Area, uh, where in 2006, um, when we opened, unblinded the results right. uh, of the trial, and what we saw was unbelievable to us. Um, we saw a nearly complete and almost immediate cessation of inflammation and disease activity in the patients who had been treated with rituximab, but not placebo. This was just such a an amazing moment for us all and the very best possible outcome of an experiment because on, immediately we had something that could be of great value to our patients. And also it told us that our underlying ideas were on the right track, but not completely correct. So it also sent us back to the laboratory with a new imperative and, and belief that it wasn't the antibody bullets at all. It was the B cell itself that was orchestrating the tissue damage in people with MS. And so, uh, and I think that was in 2006, you said, and, and I think as you write in the book, uh, that led to you or your colleagues to predict that by 2010, because um, it would be an, it would require a much one more very large trial to to establish this that uh, you might have a might have a new drug available for patients, and uh, that was seven years. It took another seven years uh, after that before that was the case, um, and. You know, then you got into a whole lot of corporate. Uh, you hit the corporate struggles, uh, changes, um, takeovers, mergers, and so forth. Um, and also the fact that you were dealing, you know, in rituxan, uh, rituximab, with a fairly old drug that, um, and I don't want to tell your story, but that obviously. Uh, was not as attractive to Genentech or companies to, to take forward in another large-scale trial. And probably not as attractive to patients as newer drugs that had more favorable characteristics mm -hmm. and that could be made fairly quickly. So ultimately... But my hope, at, my initial hope, was that we would go forward in two paths. 
first with rituximab because our patients needed that today. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, develop more attractive drugs, as you say, for, uh, uh, for this purpose. And so that new drug, that more attractive drug became ocrelizumab? Yes, uh, yes. And, uh, and you, you were the, were you the PI for those, yes. the principal investigator for those yes. trials? And uh, talk a little bit about how that unfolded. Well, um, there were many reasons why rituximab was not attractive either for people or for um, or for the companies. It as the oldest biotherapeutic drug, it was far too inexpensive for the company to ever think they could recoup the investment of what would be more than a billion dollars for the final clinical trials. But for from a patient perspective, because it, it was an old molecule that had about 40% mouse protein and 60% human protein, uh, the chance that it would cause allergic reactions over time uh, became a, another potential problem. Um, when it was used for treating cancer, it was used over a short time, but MS is a disease that lasts for decades. So there were strong reasons on both sides of the debate for a, for a new drug, um, as well as for you know, helping people today with the, with the old drug. Um, we did go forward with a new drug that had far more attractive characteristics, um, we didn't know the proper dose. Uh, Roche decided to launch trials in both multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis, and rheumatoid arthritis started first. And the first thing that happened in rheumatoid arthritis was that some people became sick with fungal and other types of infections, just a few, about 13 people in the whole large trial. And in rheumatoid arthritis, the drug was given on top of other treatments to older, sicker patients. It was given on top of chemotherapy and steroids. So there was fear that the MS program could be compromised by that knowledge. But fortunately it wasn't, and we kept moving with the MS program. And the preliminary study in MS, which was uh, unblinded in 2011, um, showed uh, to our great relief, identical and maybe even better efficacy against MS than rituximab did. So we were very confident about going forward. And now it was only a question of safety. Uh, We knew that the that the uh, effectiveness of the drug was going to be spectacular. And then during the course of the trial, somebody enrolled in the trial became very sick. And I described that sickness, which happened in a country in Eastern Europe, and how difficult it was to figure out if this could be a side effect of the drug or just something unrelated that happens to us uh, when we're unlucky. Uh, And we never figured that out, but that's a very dramatic part of this story because 
there were MS drugs which were more powerful immune modulators or suppressors than this drug that had side effects that were life-threatening. So we, we were concerned that maybe this new drug, ocrelizumab, might have this kind of side effect that we had not seen with rituximab. And we weren't sure. We could never be certain that it was cause and effect. So continued going with the study. And fortunately, a second instance never happened, uh, either during the studies of several thousand people or long after, now that more than 300,000 doses of the drug have been given to people. So um, that was another uh, cause of black hair turning gray uh, for all of us. It was certainly a roller coaster, (laughs) but reflecting um, the reality of clinical research and drug development, uh, you know, after all of that work that you accomplished to get to the, as you know, to get to that point and actually getting to a very large trial and trying to bring it to the uh, finish line, you get, you know, one of those episodes that threatens potentially the whole project. Yes. Bad things happen uh, to people in daily life and also to people in clinical trials, and it can have nothing to do with the drug that we're testing. But ultimately, you got to... um... You got to unblind the data and uh, present them to uh, a major meeting in Spain. Talk a yes. little bit about that. Um, maybe uh, one way to speak about it is that uh, despite our confidence, uh, because we knew that we weren't seeing dangerous side effects, uh, we were confident that the drug would work, but when it was unblinded, it was still an incredibly emotional moment. The program leader who had worked with me at Genentech, for example, a a wonderful woman whose neck was on the line on this, um, I remember her beginning to cry. A mixture of happiness, relief, um, hope for the future. Uh, It was a very emotional moment um, to reach the end of this journey that for uh, some of us was 40 years in the making. You know, I've, I've, uh, at the journal, Wall Street Journal, I covered scores of those kinds of presentations at, you know, the phase three, the final presentation at medical meetings and uh, reading your account of presenting that trial uh, made me, gave me a whole new perspective on all the work that leads up to that moment for, uh, you know, for researchers who have spent uh, so much time on, on, you know, a particular project or one particular goal. It was very moving just to read that. And, uh, you know, a, not necessarily the end, but certainly close to the end uh, of quite a remarkable story, which led subsequently uh, in early 2017 to FDA approval of, of uh, the drug. Yes. Yes. It, it, was a, it was a wonderful moment. I think there was a general recognition that this was 
significant, that it was going to help many people. I think today there are close to a million people on these drugs. There are many flavors or varieties of these therapies that are uh, now available. Uh, it's, it's very um, exciting for the future as well. Um, I've spoken about their benefits against attacks of MS and inflammation. These are also therapies that are effective against the slow simmering progressive form of multiple sclerosis. But the treatments are only partially effective against the progressive form. And one of the wonderful uh, scientific advances that was enabled by these trials has been the recognition that cells of the immune system that are speaking to each other through chemical mediators, B lymphocytes, and a cell called microglial, uh, the microglial cells, uh, that they are driving progression by hiding in places in the nervous system that the treatments can't reach. So this has led to a true belief that we can create a roadmap to turn MS off completely in all people. Um, and a new generation of drugs that targets B cells and also this other type of cell uh, are under development and currently in late stage clinical trials that may bring us to the finish line. But even for today, um, it is very clear that patients who begin taking these highly effective treatments early in their disease course can look towards a life free from disability, something that was unimaginable in the 1970s where people with recent onset MS on average became wheelchair dependent within 15 to 16 years. And if MS begins in some people in the teenage years, these are people who are disabled by the time they're 30 or 33. So the progress has really been extraordinary. And even more exciting is the prospect that we can climb on this advance to go even further. Well, Steve, we, uh, we've had a good long conversation here. Uh, the book, The Face Laughs While the Brain Cries, is a remarkable tale. We didn't cover a lot of details in it, but uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, and congratulations on, uh, on what you've accomplished uh, over, over those 40 and now going on beyond that uh, years in your career. Thank you so much, Ron.